Today on 1196, movement artists Little Buck and John Boogs and Ezra Miller, a.k.a. The Flash from DC's Cinematic Universe. Be the people. From West Queen West in downtown Toronto, this is 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Deus. I've been incredibly fortunate to have this evolving creative career taking me through multiple disciplines and roles from making hip-hop to filmmaking and even activism. The only true constant for me has been this deep desire to understand, activate, and access the point where art and social change converge. It's this intersection that, that seems to elevate art and the heart in these unexplainable ways and it's truly become my main source of inspiration and creation. This is truly what I love and you got to ask yourself, where did this come from? And like anything in life, multiple places, my family, my upbringing, but there's, there's one moment I remember quite distinctly and you'd have to go back to a small town in Grand Forks, British Columbia, Canada. And my mom took me to see Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. And I went with my mom and we went together and we watched this film and I'm sure my jaw was pretty much on the, on the floor the entire time because I saw New York City, I saw hip hop, I heard Public Enemy, I saw Spike Lee's incredible view of the world that my dad had told me about that I'd read about in books, but I hadn't seen it come alive on the screen, the racial tensions, these things. And I was listening to the music of that time of Public Enemy and NWA. And I'll never forget, I walked out of that film and my mom looked at me and she said, well, did Mookie do the right thing? And I, I didn't know. I thought he did. I thought, yeah, he, he had to throw that trash can through the window. And yeah, they had to burn Sal's pizzeria down. And, you know, they'd killed Radio Rahim. Of course, something had to be done about it. But what could be done about it? And it stayed with me and it stayed with me. And I listened to, to P.E. Moore and I read books and I started trying to understand the history of the Panthers and Bensonhurst and these places I'd never heard of. And it was this moment where this, this piece of art, it came into the fabric of my DNA, you know? And, and I think that that's not an individual experience. That's a, that's a collective understanding and pursuit. And wow, is that powerful when art, art can do that. And since then, I've, I've been really fortunate to meet so many people who are driven by these similar visions of having a greater social impact with their creative gifts. And joining us on our show today are some of the best, truly some of the best at this. Don't call them dancers, they're movement artists. Little Buck and John Boogs use their bodies to navigate the world and, and contribute to making it a better place. They've literally, you know, come from nothing and arrived at something so great. It's it's extraordinary. I'm, I'm in awe of their creative talents and Ezra Miller is a young man who uses whatever discipline is at his disposal and his keen sense of understanding of his gifts and commitment to make sure they have a, a positive impact on the world at such a young age is absolutely stunning. I've, I've learned a lot from these men. We've collaborated, created, and traveled the world together. So I'm incredibly excited to sit down and share their stories and have a good conversation today. But first... In honor of my MAI brothers, we take it down south with a classic record from a group that was right there at the beginning of the Southern hip hop movement in the early 90s. Little Buck actually learned to juke to these guys' music. What's jooking? You'll find out in a minute. Point is, it's only fitting that we start the show with some 3 6 Mafia. This one's called Stay Fly. You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy yeah. on Deus. Mafia, featuring A-Ball, Nim J-G, Young 
stay out the main. Ice on the wrist with the ice in the chain. Ride through the hood, yeah, I'm dripping the grain. And I'm sipping the same while I'm changing the lane. I feel tight cause I'm choking the Bitch, messed up cause I'm choking the lane. Messing with a D-boy, riding a big toys. Make your man gal wanna get on my team. She gotta give it up before she get in my car. I ain't Denzel, but I know I'm a star. Cause when I'm in the club, I be back in the bar. In the VIP bar, and be buying the bar. Yeah. trying to say something about our criminal justice system. Whenever you're talking about a violation of basic human rights, a violation of basic human dignity, your first requirement is to make sure people see the humanity of the people who are experiencing these injuries. In this country, we don't talk about slavery, we don't talk about lynching, we don't talk about segregation, and we don't want to talk about uh, racial bias in our criminal justice system. If we're serious about correcting the imbalance created by decades of inequality and injustice, we have to do more than just be silent. You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Little Buck and John Boogs are movement artists. Buck's career began as a teenager through Juking, a form of dance from Memphis, Tennessee. He exploded on the world stage when Spike Jones filmed him performing with Yo-Yo Ma at a fundraising event in L.A. The cell phone shot video went viral. Since then, Little Buck has gone on to work with the likes of Madonna, President Obama, and Apple. At the heart of his work remains a passion for arts, education, and social change. With similar passions driving his work, John Boogs co-founded Movement Art Is, or MAI, with Little Buck in 2016. Boogs is a performer, director, and choreographer, hailing from Philly by way of Miami. He's worked with gigantic talents, from Mikhail Baryshnikov and Naomi Campbell to Gloria Estefan. He's also worked on So You Think You Could Dance and Cirque du Soleil. The initial concept of MAI came about while taking part in a conference called Summit Series. Together, Buck and Boogs crafted a vision of using dance to tell stories and inspire social change, expanding on the standard definition of what a dancer is in the process. At the end of 2016, MAI released Color of Reality, a collaboration with visual artist and painter Alexa Mead and super producer Wonder Girl. The powerful piece was an expression and a reaction to the frustration and anger we all felt in response to the string of police killings of black men in America. Buck and Boogs were recently in Toronto for the shoot of Am I a Man, the follow-up to Color of Reality. MAI partnered with social activist and attorney Brian Stevenson, visual artist Hank Willis Thomas, and music producer Francis Scott Heat. I got a chance to co-direct with John Boogs. It was an extraordinary experience. And I sat down with Little Buck and John Boogs right after we wrapped the shoot. So tell us about movement art and what a movement artist is. It's someone that has meaning and gives meaning behind their movements, basically. So it's not just calling yourself a dancer or feeling like you're a dancer. It's actually feeling like you have more to bring to the table, more to bring to the world. If you feel like with your dance, you can create change, 
you know, for the better, or you can inspire people, or you can do more with your dance than just entertain people, then you're a movement artist in my eyes. Well, how would you describe it? Movement artistry is a tool to empower. It's a tool to cleanse the soul. It's a tool to break down religious, social, economic barriers. It's a universal language. It can be used to educate. But we seem to always just get put in the bubble of entertainers. Stomp the art. You know what I mean? Exactly. So we get put in this bubble. I'm an artist just like Drake is an artist, just Mm -hmm. like JR is an artist. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just we create our art with movement and dance. We try to use movement artistry to take these tough conversations and turn them into powerful messages for either people to take action or to be inspired or to just simply spark dialogue. So I don't get offended uh, because I know the power of dance. So if you call me a dancer, I don't get offended by it. I just refer to myself as a movement artist because everybody knows what we do is dancing. I think I think at one point the dancer had prestige, you know, in like Gene Kelly era, Fred Astaire era, Gregory Hines era, Barishnikov era. So I feel like in our generation, we lost that in a way where kind of like the dancer is always put behind an artist. You know what I mean? Like it's always like you're behind a recording artist or you're always secondary. You're never really at the forefront of whatever it is. is either it's the film or the concert or whatever the case is. So like to me, a movement artist also embodies that belief is like bringing dancers kind of back to the forefront of the artistry. But I think the, the difference is back then, those dancers that I named the production value was high. You know what I mean? And I think that's what we're trying to bring back is uh, the production value, you know, like the the concepts that we're doing and the films that we're doing, they have high production value. There's stories that have nothing to do with dance. We're just kind of using dance as like a tool to help storytell. That's dope. So since the summit conference in Utah, you've been talking a lot about MAI, mm-hmm. Movement Art Is. Can you tell us what MAI is, what it means to you, and what the goal is? MAI for me is like, it's a representation of Buck and I's collaboration. You know what I mean? Uh, So we kind of teamed up to do a Shaq and Kobe or Scotty and Mike or whatever comparison you want to try to do. That's kind of like we teamed up because we both believe in the same core values of the strength and the power of dance. And MAI is really an organization and a brand that's built on empowering the dancer and also bringing dance back to the forefront. You know, just like he said back in the day, like how it had that prestige, like me and him both as individuals always knew that, you know, we can bring this back through our movement somehow because, you know, he doesn't pop like the average popper, you know, so we're both like-minded about all that and about the content we put out. It's just easy for us. We're like the yin and yang of it. It's like easy for us to just come together and and just brainstorm ideas. Like, we are our own artistic circle. So basically, it's just like the two of us rotating at all times and just creating. You know what I mean? And um, and so that's how MAI came about. Just me and him at Jeff's place out there at Summit and, and, you know, Powder Mountain. We were just so inspired by, like, all these influencers out there at the Summit. And that's why I love the Summit as well, just being surrounded by that... um, by all of the energy, but we was just around all the energy and we were just talking ourselves up so much with Jeff and we were like, let's just come up with our own. And we just came up with MAI, you know, it just happened there. Yeah, and one of the first things you guys did with MAI was a short film, Color Reality. It was hugely successful. Can you tell me the best feedback you got from that project? I mean, anything that really moved you or surprised you? This lady from Chicago wrote me an email and she said, I stumbled across your video 
And she's like, I'm writing this email to you with tears in my eyes right now because she works in South Side of Chicago. She had a really tough time getting the students' uh, attention. Some kids are just coming to school to stay off the streets or get a free lunch. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because, you know, if you're on welfare, you get free lunch when you go to public school. So she was like, a lot of the kids don't care. They come to school. They don't give a shit. They're just coming somewhere to be. And she's like, I'm, I'm barely get a chance to teach. And I just wanted to sauce things up. And the first thing I did when they got into class, it was dark. I had the projection screen down and I just clicked play. And she said, for the whole five minutes, no one said a word. No one said nothing. It was complete, like, locked in. And then for the first time after that, she was able to spark dialogue with her students about what they felt about the film. What did it say to you? What did you feel about it? What was your favorite part? And she was like, that's the first time all year she's been able to interact with the kids in that way. So she was just thanking us for creating something like that uh, because it it's really impacting people in ways that we probably don't even understand. Yeah. And that's what's missing in our school systems. You know what I mean? Just having art a part of our education, a part of the process that, uh, of learning, you know, makes it a memorable experience. It's those kids in that classroom probably would never forget that yeah. that experience, a day in their life when Miss Welch or whatever her name, name is, was, yeah. played this video and it was about these two guys dancing crazy and painted and but it was about something real that they can relate mm-hmm. to. So a lot of us is a lot of us adults are already screwed, but like these kids are gonna kill it, you know? Yeah. They're gonna be the ones that, that make the change and make the difference for the better. So like we gotta invest in that as much as possible. If we can't have the arts and education, at least have it somewhere where they they can have access to it. What do they have access to? TV, computer, social networks, Facebook, all of these. So we're using these networks and we're using our content to hit them where they don't have a choice but to see this. They don't have a choice but to be inspired. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. I mean, those kids are living that every day, right? They live so it every day. You're meeting them where they where they can relate. I mean, and, you know, both of you guys come from, you know, you guys have come a long way from where you where you was born. You've been put in these positions a lot of times in your life where it's unlikely for you to succeed. Uh-huh. And even to say that maybe to your friends or family or to dream like that, it's unique. Yeah. What do you think that is that you guys have that allows you to kind of persevere like that? I've, I think I've always been kind of stubborn growing up. You know what I mean? Like when I want to do something, I want to do it. And and I kind of like when people tell me I can't do something. Like Because I come from an athletic background. I played sports my whole life all the way up until college. So like, you know, it's just like an athlete will take on a challenge of like, oh, this dude can't guard me. And then you want to prove that he can't. You know what I mean? So when people were kind of telling me, oh, you can't make a living dancing or, and especially, you know, this buck can vouch for me too, like street dancing in itself. Like we're, we're, we were saying dancing like it's general, but if you really look at it, how hard it is as a street dancer to be successful, you know what I mean? Just it's to on, have a name in the streets, period. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. Just to have your name known like as this street dancer. It, it's tough, it's yeah. Like no tough. easy props and shit. Right, but that, that wasn't even enough for you guys. Your name's ringing out in the street, but you still had the aspiration to take it to a next level. How'd you manage to do that? Through joking. I learned a lot through joking, really. And and just being in the streets, dancing with, you know, my friends and having that communication. That form of communication, battling, taught us a lot. That's interesting. Just like John Book said, it gave you that that confidence and it gave you that feeling of, you know, you know, just go for it. And, you know, I can't wait to take on this challenge. You know, this is a challenge and I'm going to conquer it. But I also knew that I had something special that L.A. didn't have. There's no jiggers in L.A. 
there's barely any jokers past Arkansas. So I know I got something to bring to the table, and I was so confident in that and what I had in Memphis because of battling. I actually thought it'd be easy for me in L.A. All I had to do was get the hell out there. And as soon as <laughs> I got there, you know what I'm saying? It's, I feel you. I really had something to prove. You know, I, I was one of the last jokers to come on, on on board. You know, I was one of the last of the of the Zods, you know? <laughs> I came after, like, Daniel and Rico and them, and they were, like, the Neo. They were, like, the perfect uh, synchronization and, and, and catalyst of gangster walking and jooking. And I came after them, so I was, like, right when it was just getting to the new school. And I, but I had a little old school in me, so, like, I was ready, bro. I was so confident. Man, I went to L.A. and just tore everything up. It's beautiful, man. So let's go back to MAI for a minute. We just finished shooting the new piece, Am I a Man?, which looks at mass incarceration in the prison industrial complex in America. Mm -hmm. You got color reality out there taking on a life of its own. What is it about these pieces that's allowing them to resonate and have this type of success? There's this chain, you know? There's this chain in this cycle of so many stereotypes, of so many things out there, so many social injustices, so many social issues out there. And, it, and you know, it's like history always tends to repeat itself, right? So like, I think us using this dance as a tool it can be used as a hammer, as a key, or whatever. But I feel like we can break this chain. We can break this cycle. We can be the help that breaks this cycle. We can be a part of breaking this cycle through our movement, through our artistry, and through our content. I mean, for me also, and it's funny because Buck talks about battling and how battling prepared us. And the reason why I say that is, like, I'll be honest. I want to put out legendary shit. You know what I mean? Like, as a dancer, you know what I mean? Just like MCs want to put out the best album they can put out. Kendrick Lamar wants to put out the best album. Or Jay-Z wants to put out the best album. I want people to say, that shit Buck and Bugs did. I, that shit is just undisputably classic, you know? And I do think like that. It's like, and then when sometimes somebody like a Daniel Cloud or someone that I respect puts out some work and I'm like, damn, okay. You know, almost like I'm, I'm like... That was raw, you know, I'm giving you props. But the battler in me is like, you just inspired me so much. It's like when the dude does, comes out and does a crazy move and you have to respond with a move that's as crazy or crazier. So it, I am mildly competitive about the art because, but it's in a way to push everyone forward. I think competitiveness is good when it's healthy. Inadvertently, we're helping the craft move forward, you know? So... How do you guys approach working with brands in this corporate age we're living in? A lot of times, and I told this to JR, and it's changed JR's whole perspective on how he sees the way I go about being in the commercial world. I use television as a platform to reach the masses back at home and to inspire because I'm from their backyard. Like a lot of people, when I, that's why it's so important for me to keep going back home and go back to my roots because they can see me face to face and see that, you know, wow, this person was in the same neighborhood as I am. Like five years ago, I was just joking with him at the Jugging Academy five years ago and he's on a commercial with Apple or he's doing this and that, you know? So we're around all these huge circles and you, they're taking a lot from us and they're learning a lot from us actually. It's just been a blessing just to be able to collaborate with these huge brands to help us do that. I think there would have been a time in my life prior if it, I can't say the brand we're working with, but I wouldn't have had the the confidence at times to tell a big brand, no, this is how it needs to be done. You know what I mean? And I think 
that's the difference now is like these big platforms, social media platforms, brands from clothing to shoes. It's like they're the ones that have the power. Like Buck was saying, kids are watching TV or they're on their phone or they're on Instagram or they're on Twitter. And these are the brands that have to shape. They're ultimately shaping our world. You know what I mean? So if we don't, if we're not, if those platforms aren't stepping out and really making powerful moves to change the world, then it's really going to kind of stay stagnant, you know? So no matter what brand I'm working with now, I have no problems with telling them what I think is the best way to put out a particular message that I think is going to inspire people. And if it doesn't work out, then then go to somebody who understands it then. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, like, And I, I really learned that a lot from having conversations with you just about being authentic and always sticking to what's real and authentic to your morals and what you believe. Because at the end of the day, we don't go with none of this shit. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and, and not to get all deep on anybody, no, but that's, that's kind of real, you know? Like, So at the end of the day, I don't go with my sneakers. I don't go with my money. So why should I have any fear in telling someone what I feel is real? You know what I mean? Like, I, And I think that's helped me so much in staying true to what I want to do. And I think that's why the work is coming out the way it's coming out, because it's authentic. Word up. Sense? Hell yeah. yeah. Much more to come. Thank you, brothers, yeah. man. Respect, man. man. Yes, sir. Yup. But, man. Nice. That's dope. So, here's what happened. So, let me tell you about that time when... So, what had happened was... I have a story to tell. So, here's what happened. Who y'all talking to, man? And now, it's time for Here's What Happened with Saul Guy on 1196. So, what had happened... So, I was thinking about this sweet spot of where art and activism converge and... Last year, I had a pretty incredible moment where I saw the theory become real. Um, We've all heard about Standing Rock and the the fight against the pipeline. For me, Standing Rock has a deep significance in my life. I've been going there for almost 10 years. Uh, The community there is friends and family. I've been fortunate enough to to learn, to listen, and when asked, uh, been able to be a bridge to help share and amplify the things that have been happening there, the good things and the difficult things. And so... April 2016, I get a call from my friend DJ Two Bears and LaDonna Brave Bull, who are from Standing Rock and work with uh, the community. And they tell me about this story that um, there's a pipeline that they want to run through the res that they tried to run in Bismarck about 45 minutes up the road. And everybody in Bismarck became enraged and said they can't possibly run this pipeline through our community. It could damage our water source. And they said, well, we'll just go down little ways down the road and run it through the the res and we'll get things cracking. But, you know, the community, as you know, wasn't standing for it. But the call that came was interesting in that they asked, how do we get the word out that this is happening? Nobody really knows we're here. People kind of don't care about what happens here. And and so I was sitting with, in fact, Ezra Miller, who was in Brooklyn at the time. Uh, They told me about the pipeline. They told me they were going to run it through their main water source. And they said that it was going to be 200 meters away from the only school in Standing Rock. So we thought about it and we talked about it. We said, well, if you're a kid in Standing Rock, how does that make you feel? And we realized in that moment, we said, well, let's ask them. And so that was what we did. We hopped on a plane with a couple of cameras and we asked them about the river and the water and what it meant to them. And they said the most extraordinary things. They said what would become a hashtag that took off around the world. They said that day, water is life. 
and we, we cut it into a little two minute video and we delivered it to the tribe. And that was literally the very first video that came out about Standing Rock that was a spark that became a, you know, a fire that blazed around the world. And, and if you look, you know, that video still doesn't have millions of views. In fact, it's, it's quite modest, the views. But what's inspiring to me was that the idea resonated. And ideas and understanding are more impactful than likes and sharing. And that's the story of how I got the privilege to participate and be a part of Standing Rock to stop that pipeline. You're listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. Deus. Then west to the north and south Warrior, warrior Gather every child Mama needs your love Warrior, warrior Suits are moving in just to get their dollar Treat us be a broken or respect the honor Listen close my friend Listening to 1196 with Saul Guy on Deus. The young man Ezra Miller is one of the brightest and most talented people I know. As an actor, he flows between indie art house and Hollywood blockbusters with ease. And as a musician, he continues to push musical boundaries with his band Sons of an Illustrious Father. His first on screen appearance came after dropping out of school. <laughs> Ironically, the film was called After School. This is followed by a string of roles on TV shows like Californication and Law and & Order. But Ezra's breakthrough came via his eerie and unforgettable performance in the critically acclaimed film We Need to Talk About Kevin, where he starred alongside the incomparable Tilda Swinton. Cult classics like The Perks of Being a Wallflower and comedies like Trainwreck followed. 
But Ezra's star power was solidified when he was cast in two of Warner Brothers' A-list franchises. First as The Flash in DC's The Justice League, and then as the creepy Credence Barebone in J.K. Rowling's Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. From traveling to the Arctic to put a spotlight on the effects of climate change, to being one of the first celebrities to truly stand with Standing Rock as they oppose the Dakota Access Pipeline, Ezra certainly uses his platform to draw attention to some of the most pressing issues of our time. So I want to talk to you about movies. Sure. You've been acting since you were a teenager, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've been acting in film since I was 14. Mm-hmm. I've been acting in a variety of other silly sorts of stuff from a, you know, from a younger age. But then I, I got really into opera. I was an opera singer and then was doing a lot of theater and musical theater and got into film around when I was 14. Really caught the bug. I mean, I still love theater. And, you know, I was doing a lot of improvisational comedy and stuff like that. I still love that stuff. Uh, but the film bug is a unique critter. <laughs> so film since I was, yeah, 14. Did you ever consider anything else? Was there ever a consideration of another career besides exploring the arts? Uh, it's half out of, I guess, conventional finer creative arts. But I did have a plan at one point to run Ezra's House of Love. My plan was to get a like um, like get culinary training mm-hmm. and then get a massage therapy license and then become a social worker and be able to essentially like talk to you about your problems, give you a massage and feed you a meal. You give me money and then you come back next week. It's like a therapist would just be like in my house. Or, or maybe in like my mother's basement, that would be Ezra's house of love. And you'd come and I'd be like, give you a massage. Now it sounds really creepy. But when I was 11, I was like, all right. This you just, came up with that this, when you were 11. Yeah. You know, when I was, because really the real answer, Saul, I mean, that's true is I actually did. I would talk about that as the contingency plan, the plan B, but truth be told, there wasn't a plan B. It wasn't. I decided when I was eight, very firmly from six to eight, it was the consideration period in my <laughs> life where I was like, do I do this? Do I make, do I commit to this? You know what I mean? What am I willing to do? How far am I willing to go? Then I was, when I was eight, I was like committed. I stated it. I was like, dad, I'm going to be an actor and a performer musician. Like, uh, cause really at eight yeah, years old, a hundred percent. And I was very certain. And I, I, it was really, it was a conviction. And then I didn't get the, no, that's impossible. Well, Bob Miller would not say that. No. I've met your father. Yes. You what, know. Did, what was his response? He was like, wow, that's so cool that you know that now because you have such a jump start, and you can, great. We should go to a bookstore and you should get some books about like how a professional performer does that and, you know he went and got like the actor prepares at like a bookstore and he was like this is great you'll have to read a lot of Shakespeare you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. like and so that sort of privilege you know from a young age to be in, in that position of feeling like supported and feeling just certain that it was what I wanted to do and so interesting like you say support it's those moments where like literally if your father had have been like brushed it aside, yeah. you could have actually gone a different direction. Yeah. I mean, my mother had an experience when she was young where, where a, a dancer came to her school and it was just school dance class, you know. But at the end of the thing, this woman came up to my mother and said, you are a dancer. 
And she recalls that at that moment, it was like someone had put a spell on her where now she had this special information that Mm. she could do this weird thing that a lot of people, other people would say, no, you cannot do that. That is unrealistic. It's not pragmatic. You can't survive in the world doing that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that that sort of support for artists is the most critical thing, especially when when we're young, but also throughout our whole lives and our uh, the creation of a body of work. Mm. You need a lot of support. It's, you know, takes a village. Absolutely. What what about acquiring skills? Because one of the things I observe about you is you're very you're very disciplined. You kind of consume information and somehow have this unbelievable ability to retain it. <laughs> yeah. You're the one of the only people I know who can have a informed conversation about pretty much anything. And for someone who at such a young age to have that much, how did you digest all that information? For me, it was always deeply connected with the artwork. Right. So learning libretto, uh, for those of learning us who the don't words know, in, in an opera. That yeah. Is it's an opera. the, it's the, you know, it's the words written to the music of okay. an opera. My singing cured, uh, my stutter, which I had when I was a kid, I had a stutter and then I started singing and it was just this all consuming solution to everything. It made me so happy. It was like such a joyful, perfect thing. And the more I did it, the more I was breathing and the less I was stuttering. So I think there was something in the devotion to that where I was just like, I'm learning all these words. I think memory works differently for everyone. You know how they say, they're like different types of learners, mm-hmm. you know, like auditory or I think I'm emotional. I don't know if that's one of the official ones, but I think like it's like when stuff makes me feel. It retains. The the weird memory gift is, is it's a gift and, you know, gift and a curse because <laughs> then you also remember like, oh, you know, when you like go back and you just remember like a time when you were 12 and you were a dick. <laughs> You know what I mean? Or last week. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so memory is, you know, but it's good. Yeah, I can learn lines. Sometimes I remember fun facts. And and you choose not to use any social media. That's true. Tell us about that. Like, which is in an age where like every artist is encouraged. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of stuff that plays into the decision. And that reinforces it over time. I mean, obviously, it's these are amazingly powerful tools that everyone is suddenly using. Even just a step back historical perspective, like we've just all started carrying around these incredibly powerful tools and using this incredibly powerful new form of communication. And I recognize the potential incredible good that that can come of of that and how it could be used in incredible ways um for me though i don't want to be so close to to everybody in this artificial way Mm. i don't want to be so close i want to feel the space between me and and this person i think of artists i love you know what i mean like artists that that i was interested in you know they didn't they didn't answer to the public Mm. Because of the where the technology was at. But then also I think there's something really nice about that. You know what I mean? In terms of like, I don't know. You shouldn't have to know everything about me, what I'm eating, where I am in the world at all times. You know what I mean? Like 
doesn't it make it all a, a bit less fun? Well, it's some magic. You leave some magic to it, right? Yeah. Yeah, no. Absolutely. You're, you're right. Then again, it's amazing the way that social movements can use it. Well, that's the, the thing is we've, we've not, you Artists know, can use it to share work. And I want to be clear. It's not that you have some sort of like statement or disdain for it because in the work that we've done together, I remember we were laughing when we were on that adventure to the North Pole with, uh, you know, with Greenpeace to make this statement about climate change. And you did your first tweet. <laughs> yeah. We were laughing. But the point was, is it got a lot of attention and you did the promotion that was necessary. The work we've done together in Standing Rock and that community for years, you've always contributed in those ways. Sure. And I'm super happy to work with for campaigns all those or, right. people who do understand the tool and who are using it consciously in sort of direct opposition to those people using it unconsciously who take it out of this world of vanity. You know what I mean? Like that's the other thing is like, man, are we all just becoming narcissists? I think we all have to resist that in a big way. I know I do. I'll, I'll own up to that right away. And it's like this thing of being trapped in yourself. And it doesn't mean you love yourself. Right. It means you're in this constant, horrible, this loop of like, self-awareness it's we're watching it play itself out on the biggest stage right yeah. now these tools affecting like yeah the president of the yeah. united states it's it's like, people eating their own heads you know what <laughs> i mean and it can be really bad for you that's yeah. why it's like so for me a conscious use of the tool mm. is when you're expressing through it mm. my dream is that artists are free to make their work and then not judge it so much. Mm. And also just us as human beings, like that we're free to be fallible people who make lots of mistakes, who are always in learning processes, who are not always pretty, who are not always, don't always look so buff. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, like who are not in a struggle between self-loathing and self-aggrandizing who are in the middle and ground, that a, balanced right, place which is of self-love. Yeah, sure. It's where humility meets strength, mm. where you realize like, hey, I'm cool for the person who I am. The good stuff in my life, the bad stuff in my life, it's all been this magical play and it's made me this character mm. and like wherever that is. And I mean it to the darkest corners of where you can find yourself in this life. That's cool. It's interesting. It's okay. Yeah, man. That's beautiful, my brother. So you are now officially a superhero. Barry Allen, a.k.a. The Flash in DC's cinematic universe. Wow. Can you talk to us a little bit about your perspective on indie films versus Hollywood blockbusters? You know, I have a deep and lasting devotion to all works of art independent. But like when I was a kid, I was watching Terminator 2 like every day. You know what I mean? Like like the the dream in film on some level was always to be able to participate in productions of every scale because there's power to each scale. But I've always held myself to a very strict diet of working on art I really believe in and that a story that I not even just that I think it's going to be a good work of art, but I want to feel the necessity of the expression. I want to feel like it's a story I need to think about for six months, potentially, mm. or more. Or years. Or years and years <laughs> and years and years. Uh, 
you know, because there were a lot of things that were really cool, but just didn't feel quite right. But it was like, oh my gosh, but this is it. And they're offering, and then everyone starts telling you like, this is a big opportunity. So you should say yes. And that might be true. You know, then you kind of sit around being like, okay, here I am with my integrity. You know what I mean? Like what comes next? Maybe nothing. Mm. Maybe community theater. Right. Forever. You know what yeah. I mean? Which is like every job offer could be your last job offer in this. You know, there's like no solid ground in this whole industry. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Like everybody's staying afloat no matter where they are. Doggy paddle. Yeah. Everyone's doing the doggy paddle. I'm really proud of you, bro. I'm proud of what you're doing. You know, I love going to the theater and seeing you up there, but I love watching how you move through the world with integrity and authenticity and provide your your gifts to things that matter and to your craft with a discipline and a devotion that is, dare I say, devastating. That was a lot of D's. It was intentional, though. Well, I will say thank you, Saul. And I feel very honored by that. And at risk of becoming just a puddle of mush uh we'll say that the feeling is mutual in in ineffable ways and watching you do this and engage in what is a a really serious effort to try something ambitious and to try something new yeah you are inspiring and creating space for a lot of us and so yeah thank you thank you for your words but also thank you for what you're doing. It's, it's getting, I feel the mush pile. <laughs> Me too. The I love mush you, pile is coming. <laughs> I love you too. Yeah, man. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, man. And it's, and it, you it's hear that radio <laughs> listeners, Saul and I love each other. <laughs> we certainly do. We are and old it's friends. Only just we begun. love each other. It's only just begun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what's coming next? <laughs> no, it's, it's amazing. Really fun, fun times. Thank you, man. Yeah. Thank cool. you. Cue chill musical outro <laughs> 1196 is produced by Saul Guy Reza Daya Chris Penrose and Megan Eliza follow us at Deus Creates One, two, three, four.